Welcome back. This is Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Shiloh. This is episode 34. We have done an amazing job this year of knocking out episodes. We have. We're, we're going to try and, and increase it next year, too. I think oh. we can do that. Oh, man. We can do it. Don't drop that on me right now. We can now. do that. <laughs> no, but I think... Happy holidays. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, this is mommy and daddy fighting at the dinner table. Um that was one of our goals, to put out two episodes consistently a month, which we have done. And our other goal for this year was joining a podcast network that felt right, and we did that. Well, so yeah. happy just where we we're We couldn't at. be luckier. I mean, yeah. seriously, it's a, it's a, such a great match. We love those guys. Yeah. And we've also just met amazing people. I know. Just really amazing people. I, I mean, yeah, I you was know, actually you're, you're connecting us with that. Steve Hodell, who is an amazing guy, and then Rebecca from Dialogue and True Crime Trivia. Yeah. That then we hooked, you hooked them up together. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind funny. of an amazing community, and our listeners are part of that community, too. I, I think it's great. I was thinking about that over Thanksgiving, how grateful I am for all of those connections and just how great everybody has been. But so this is a little bit of um, it's not the last episode of the year, but a little bit of a roundup uh, wrap up episode. So we're going to do some listener questions because we are getting great questions constantly, Um, like really good topics that maybe we wouldn't have as a standalone episode. I mean, we definitely could. Yeah. But this is a good platform for us to just sort of do a quick and dirty, you know, research, answer the question, talk about it, chat a little bit, give you a little bit on a lot of topics. And some of these questions are are, are also sort of directed towards our personal experience of the kind of work right. that we do. And they're really smart questions. Yeah. So. And there's some fun stuff thrown right. in here too. So we hope it's a good mix for you today. Um, anything else you want to bring up? Should we jump in? What? Okay. I do want to bring on? up something. I want to be a complete fanboy. Oh my God. It's the first time I ever had a training with Dr. Reed Malloy. Finally. Holy Jeez. crap. Psychopathy training, right? Psychopathy training. It was an entire day. Shiloh, I embarrassed the shit out of myself because I'm doing that thing. Like, you know, you've been with me in trainings where I'm over eager and I want to over participate. And so I try and back off. I mean, for one thing, you guys, Reed Malloy is, is the godfather of this work. I mean, he really, really is. And not only is he super smart and super professional, he's also like so easy to listen to. Right. Like his presentations are smooth without being slick is the way I would mm-hmm. put it. And mm-hmm. you come out of there feeling like you've really learned something. And he's also like this like amazingly handsome man. Like, like total you know, silver fox. Total silver surfer fox, Southern California. Did you get to talk to him one-on-one? I didn't. I was too intimidated. He, I was really intimidated. He also makes you feel like you're the only person in the room when he's talking wow. to you one-on-one. I was like seven months pregnant when I took his class and he just asked me about the baby and how things were going and it was really personable and nice. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you're a fan of this genre, then please look up Reed Malloy. He's got books on Amazon. He is amazing. He explains things in layman's terms that I think are even important for those of us that are in this profession. Like, we we need to know how to do that. Follow him on Twitter. He is constantly posting really fantastic reads and um, just great articles and really, you know, 
mainly working in the area of threat assessment now. Um, I think that whenever, you know, there's sort of another school shooting or another mass uh, casualty incident, I kind of wait to see what he's going to say in his tweets. And he doesn't rush to judgment on stuff, but also kind of makes you feel safe and comfortable too. Yeah. Um, so I, I enjoy following yeah. him. So that was a, an amazing training and probably in the next, in the next few episodes, I might come back, circle back around because he goes over the, the psychopathy, um, bullet points of what meets criteria versus what doesn't and, mm-hmm. and differentiating, you know, when you're making a diagnosis and when you're making an approach for treatment or for evaluation, it was just really, it was great. Just, I came away like buzzing, like at the end of the day, I was just so mm-hmm. It was like I'd been yeah. drinking Red Bulls all day, I'm telling you. <laughs> our, so today I was looking at our statistics on Spotify, and our psychopathy episode from like two years ago was still one of the most streamed really? this year. Yeah, yeah. So people can't get enough of that topic. Good. Maybe it's time to do a follow-up, you yeah. know, sort of a, a, a sister episode to it. That would be great. And then you and I are getting ready to do a presentation together, which we have never presented together, have we? Not in a like professional setting, maybe in training. I don't even think we did in training. I mean, we did either. We just collaborated on so many things, and then yes. like did we did group therapy together, and we consulted on clients, and we've con- kept up consulting. But no, we haven't. So this yeah, is we our first presentation together. It's, it's kind of a big deal. It's for a law enforcement academy. Per, presentation for a, a threat assessment conference and it's it's the yeah. big deal I mean we're yeah. we're excited about it so we're going to be talking about incels um, which is I was just reflecting today on how neat it is that we're starting to see sort of these paths of the podcast and our job um, come together in different ways that they haven't before right you know our jobs were sort of jumping off points to the podcast but now, it's kind of feeding back into each other the other way. It was just super neat. Well, and this is going to be interesting because it's going to actually be the f- the first time that really our worlds, I don't want to say collide because that <laughs> I don't want them to collide. No. I, want, I want them to intersect. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I love what we've got planned to do, but um, right. yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So should we go to some listener questions? Let's start with the listener questions. Okay. God, you got some good ones. You really <laughs> got some good ones. It's all, all our people out there. So from our friends at the Tennis Podcast, which I cannot get enough of Nick and Brandon, you guys, if you need something non-true crime, even though they do some true crime top 10 lists every once in a while, please go listen to them. They are hilarious. They're great. Um, so they ask if you could know the 100% truth on any unsolved case, what case would you choose? Want to go ahead? No, I'm going to let you start because I'm basically oh. following your lead. I mean, you're... Oh, my gosh. Okay. So um, I, I know I have said before, and I, I kind of want to expound on this, that John Benet Ramsey is like my holy grail. If I had any question to ask, that's the answer I would want. Um, and I think there are also some other common ones that run through my mind, like, of course, Black Dahlia um, and... Being from Southern California, I can't help it. Like Tupac and Biggie, I would love to just have yeah. definitive answer on what went on there. Yeah, um, I'm also listening to a podcast right now called Slow Burn. That's an investigation into those murders. Oh wow, okay. um, which is great. So, um, but those feel obvious choices. So I think I'm going to actually make my answer. Um, 
about the hundreds of women and girls who have been murdered in Juarez, Mexico since 1993. Um, So if people aren't familiar with it, basically there have been these brutal kidnappings, rapes, murders of hundreds of women and girls in Mexico. They're often factory workers right at the border, and Juarez is right across from El Paso. So it's right at the border. There are some American companies that have factories on the other side in Mexico. Um, And like to give you an idea, by 2005, there were like 370 women that had been Found, And I'm talking like either dumped in mass graves where there's finding like eight bodies at a time um, or just out dumped in the desert alone. Um, in 2011 alone, 300 women were killed. It's just horrific. And there's been there have been some people that have been prosecuted for one, two, three, like maybe a handful. But the theories have been. Everything from, you know, an American serial killer to the cartels and some other sort of organized crime. Um, That is it just a matter of the lawlessness and blood sport of people in that part of Mexico because it is so violent and dangerous? It's brutal, yeah. Um, And law enforcement is, is struggling to maintain any kind of power. Right. Or presence in that area. I mean, and, and law enforcement is in at completely at a level of personal danger that is unmatched right. by anything in the U.S. Right. Completely unmatched. Like, they don't even I- identify. It's almost like the new series Watchmen. Mm-hmm. You know, when they do raids, they don't show their faces and they hide their identities. And yet the cartels find out and wipe out entire families. Right. Right. It's. So, do you have a theory? Do you think it's? I don't. I, I sort of, I had read a book. It's called The Daughters of Juarez. Um, and I'll put the information in the show notes. It was really good. It was done by um, three female authors and one, the main author, she was a news reporter down there, which I thought was very brave of her too put together this book, um, bringing light to it. I know there's also been some several documentaries. I think there's also been some um, adaptations and, like, movie of the week type movies done on it. Um, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was really interesting. There was a theory about it being the bus drivers that would drive the women to the factories to and from and that it was sort of a ring of them. Um and a bus driver did, in fact, get convicted of, I think, three or four murders. Um, but these numbers are just insane. So, well, I, also the idea that it's mass graves. I mean, ma- you know, if it's if they were unless it right. if, um, when, unless when they talk about mass graves, they mean dumping spots. So, is a mass grave where one particular bus driver or group of individuals who are perpetrators? Do they use the same dumping place? I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. The one particular one that I'm thinking of more recently where there were eight bodies found, I don't know if they were able to determine if some were had been there longer than others or if they were all killed at the same time or what have you. But it's just, it's horrific. Um, and to, I just, I, it's so frustrating and I pick it, you know, not because of the horrific nature of it, because I just don't think we'll ever really get a good answer. And that's that's horrific in and of itself. Right. And there's a parallel for me. The highway killings of indigenous women in Canada, 
has, except that a lot of the bodies just disappear. Like they sure. just disappear and they're, they aren't finding the bodies in the same way. Yeah, but they're still not these numbers. Yeah. And it's, it's still, yeah, I understand yeah. the, the, the similarities though, the feeling it leaves you with. Yeah. And the, the thing that is particularly discomforting for me is the idea of, you know, the misogyny and marginalization of women in those communities. I'm not, I mean, particularly in your example that you're talking about is that they're factory workers, but, you know, they're not necessarily all Mexican. They're from even more rural parts of other South American countries mm-hmm. that have, you know, immigrated north to take these very low-paying jobs. Right. And, you know, a lot of sections of the culture there really are steeped in machismo and patriarchy, and women are just seen as second, third, fourth, fifth-class citizens, right. you know, objects to be yeah. used and tossed aside. Exactly. And that that complicates it. You know, yeah. certainly we have aspects of that in the U.S. right now that we're moving forward. But, you know, um, sure. I think that's what really makes me uncomfortable about it. Right. It's just that these aren't even people. You know, they don't even look at the they don't they don't look at the victims, these poor women as people. They look at them as objects or animals to be used and discarded. Right. Which is horrible. I, yeah. I, I think it is the, one of the instances in which when I use the term objectified, I'm not even necessarily saying, you know, sexually that absolutely it's even less than that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, um, yeah. Anyway. Well, so, so okay, I'm going to piggyback on on certainly one of yours, uh, okay. which is John Bonet. Okay. Um, I'm just, you know, I was always fascinated by it. I'm even more fascinated. I've become more fascinated by it because of you. <laughs> your obsession. And we talked about this with Rebecca at our live show just a little bit. Right. Um, I, I I just, I have a, I mean, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> like, Allegedly. Like some you people are getting lot? sued. Right. Um, but I have a, I have a strong feeling. Okay. You know, after watching a couple of interviews in the last few years, I have a very strong idea of who it is and how it happened, which to me is the most logical explanation for it. Sure. And it's that's what makes it infuriating for me is that it's so clear to me what it is, and yet uh, money is money and power and position mm-hmm. are protecting somebody. I mean, at this point, just fucking come clean. Hmm. I mean, I that's yeah. I know that's yeah, that's I know it's that's, um, that's too logical. It is. It's too logical, but it you know it, it frustrates me. Sure. So, and then the other thing, um, I have two others. One that I've hopped on um, a couple of times is um, the exhaustive podcast "Cold" talked about the, um, Susan Powell's disappearance. Um, which it's very clear that her husband killed her, that Josh killed her. Um, but the body was never found. Right. And I'm I, like for her family, for her, especially because you've heard her voice, we've heard her recordings, we've heard her journals. You know, you come away from that podcast. I mean, it, it, it wrecked me. Um, it's that it was a tough one to listen to, but I will say it was very well done and I was pulled into the, her world and I am moved by how 
it was a perfect example of coercive control and the cycle of violence and how she continually marginalized her life and narrowed her life because of this sick individual and, and the influence his family had on them. And, you know, she just deserved all of our victims, all the victims deserve better than this. But, you know, for them, for him to be such a psychopath, to take himself and his children out at the end and then leave this mystery of what happened to her. Right. I mean, it's clear she's in like a well or a mine shaft somewhere just dumped. I mean, that's, but you know, yeah. it'll, it'll probably be found in a couple hundred years when somebody, but just, it's just tragic to it me. It is. It is. It's that unknown factor. And today, the cold podcast posted a like family Christmas picture that was taken 10 years ago today. Shoot. And God, she's just, you look at her and you're like, you are so much better than the man that you married. And, and I don't mean better than like, you know, status or whatever, but just, gosh. Well, how but awful. no, you bring up a great point because, I mean, you know, and, uh, Cold is the kind of podcast where you, the when you start, you listen to it and then you start talking about it. And like you just triggered a whole bunch of things. I mean, when you say that she was a, a better person, you know, she was like this woman cared so much about her children. And despite her husband being this just complete asshole, she was walking to work. Like right. miles each direction because her devotion was to be taking care of those kids. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, that's – I could go on. But, you know, I feel the same way now after becoming part of Crawl Space about Mara Murray. Yeah. Like – and now that um, – Tim and Lance are following up with other similar cases. Like it's just you go down a rabbit hole of all these these women who have disappeared. And it it's an indictment of our society. I mean, maybe maybe this has always happened. Maybe this is this is what mankind is like. And we've been doing this for generations. It's just that now we live in a world of instant communication where we're actually having to look at the fact that these things happen. Oh, absolutely. But, absolutely. You know, the, 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 I, there's such a haunting image in Missing Mara Murray where they describe the um, search dog following the trail and then just sitting in the middle of the road. So it's clear she was taken into a car. She got into right. a car. But it's also the, the the absence of anything, just the vanished piece. Absolutely. It's like, it's like an episode of Twilight Zone. Right. It's like the episode of the Twilight Zone where the little girl falls out of bed into another dimension. I mean, yeah. and she's just gone, you know? Yeah. So, and then finally, the other one that, which is more on the, the um, sort of the area of high strangeness or what we call high weirdness mm-hmm. is missing 411. And there's a the author, David Polites, that I've talked about before. He's been interviewed several times on Mysterious Universe. And look, I mean, the guy is a little out there and he goes for a lot of Bigfoot and Sasquatch theories, which, um, you going know, squatching. going squatching, I'm telling you. But his series of books called Missing 411, and there's one major one, and there's a documentary, um, I think they, he really brings up some good questions. And what's interesting to me is that um, Skepticamp and Data Skeptic podcast um, supposedly debunked and disputed um, Politi's claims of 
how many people disappeared. And they basically said every single thing can be accounted for people falling or getting lost or being killed by wildlife, and that statistically there are no outliers. And I've been looking for their actual correlations, and I can't find any of their research. Now, I'm not, and I'm not saying that Polich and the other people at Skeptics are, are, are withholding it. They're not. I just haven't got my hands on it. However, what was established in that um, in Missing 411 is that his interview with rangers indicate that even park rangers are saying, hey, the National Park Service is not releasing data on how many people disappear from here. So if the National Park Service is not releasing data, then how is Polich and his Patriot, his compatriots, mm-hmm. how are they actually doing their studies? Now, I could be corrected, and if somebody out there wants to yeah, educate me but on it, it's not making sense. At I'm, right I'm, now. I'm totally happy to be educated. I love, I love being wrong, but um, I think that I don't. You know, I'm not saying that aliens or Sasquatch is grabbing kids and disappearing, but there have been some very, very odd. Um, disappearances and things that can't be accounted for where bodies are found or remains are found and from miles, like remains of children being found miles and miles and miles from where they disappeared with no tears in their clothing. So no right. animals of prey tore into them. And it's just, it's weird. So and the timing, like not gone for that long. And yeah, there's, like there are several of them that weren't gone long enough or there were found, but the, the distance between their missing point and their location point couldn't have been covered. And that's, that's so anyway, that's our answer. Do, to do, that do, one. Do, 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 do. All right. Long winded answer. I know we didn't pick just one, but those are the ones that were, yeah. you know, Long-term passionate about and then sort of newly on our radar. So um, so our next question comes from a very active listener and social media presence with us, and it's Chris Brewer. Hey, Chris. So he says, the question is, do you feel social media use has contributed to the recent rise in adolescent suicide? Great question. It's a great question. And I, I mean, the stats show that it has, right? Yeah. Okay. Next okay. question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, because I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Like, you know, I, I lecture on this to law enforcement every couple of weeks. I do a presentation on adolescent mental health issues. And, you know, the, the world is very different now for adolescents. Mm-hmm. Bullying for someone of my generation, if you were bullied, stopped basically at 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. Because that's when you were heading home from school. That Those days are gone. You know, it, bullying is – and we're, when I talk about bullying, I mean chronic – unrelenting activities that, you know, can can include cyberbullying, verbal abuse, physical abuse, chronic and ongoing, not one or two incidents that are sort of the rites of passage of of children. But the amount of um, cyberbullying that crosses the line into Mm cyberstalking just continues to increase every year. There's no relief period. None. When you take that into account. So just to give people a perspective, by 2017, there were 47% more suicides among people age 15 to 19 than there were in the year 2000. Um, And it's now the leading cause, the second leading cause of death for teens behind traffic collisions, which has always kind of been at the top. Um, We're seeing... Suicide rates in the population rise overall, but 
it's really spiking with adolescents. Um, and then it always sort of for years and years and years and years, the highest risk population was basically like 65 and over. Right. And white, white males, yeah, 65 white males, and over. If you're white, if you're male, if you're 65 and over, those were all um, high risk factors. But now it has dropped down a decade. It's between um, 55 and 65 now. So that's the first time we've seen that trend just in area of suicide alone. So there's a, there's a lot going on. There is. And also, I think you brought up the point in, in your notes that I was looking over that there's been uh, a noted increase in black male suicide, mm-hmm. which is really significant because African-American populations have never had a high suicide nope. rate. No. Nope. Um, despite many other cultural and societal pressure, societal pressures that they've sure. had to endure, that has not been a factor. And that is something that we really need to look at. Yeah. All What's of contributing these, to that? All of these things are things we have to keep an eye on. And as we've said before with other types of research, you know, once you start to see a new trend or things change, that's when the research begins. So... I think we have a pretty good idea of what is contributing to some of these things, but we still need more time to understand it and have the empirical backing there. Um, I was also going to say, you know, with teens, the it, there's I found some interesting articles in looking at the opioid epidemics and addiction and the stressors that come on with that and the way that that has spiked in this country in the last several years has got to be a contributing factor. Um, but I think we're also in a time where there's less stigma about suicide in general. And I kind of wobble back and forth in between just general population. We're looking at adolescents and then also what I know in law enforcement communities about high rates of suicide. And of course, as my job as a law enforcement psychologist, we're, that, that's a hot topic right now. We talk about it all the time, prevention, awareness. Well, because it's spiking. Well, right? yeah. Well, yes. Yes and no. I, I don't want to go into the numbers too much, but it, it in NYPD, like 10 in the first 10 months of the year. I mean, in, it's insane that's numbers. insane. Um, but... A lot of it, so in law enforcement, people we are just now talking about it. We didn't talk about it. It often got um, misclassified as accidental deaths because you want the families to still get the pension. You don't want the stigma on the department. Um, you want to be able to give them, you know, proper funeral services without people thinking, "Oh, well, shit, he killed himself. Why are we going to honor this person?" It was covered up a lot, yeah. and I think that is also shown to be true when it comes to children where either parents have tried to cover up what are intentional suicides of their children and or there's documents of like coroners changing reports as to not bring on shame to the family, especially in smaller rural areas. So I think we're shifting with that to where people aren't doing that as much. We're looking at it for what it is. And then automatically the numbers are going to rise just based on that. That's true. So I think. So we're open and we're looking at taking a broader and right. more accurate stance than we have. Yeah, in the past. more accurate, but also talking about it and the awareness and lessening the 
stigma is helping people get access to mental health care, right. too. So There was something in the news just recently about uh, a funeral mass for a teenager, just an amazing, apparently an amazing, amazing young man, and the priest uh, in the middle of the 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 presentation basically said, well, it's too bad he's not going to heaven and yeah, just devastated that. the family. I mean, you're just trying to wrap your mind around. And look, I, respect to your beliefs, but like that was not the time. No, that was not no. the time to be delivering that message, whatever his that particular belief system was. I mean, I understand that, you know, for some fates that that's completely incompatible, but to traumatize the family in the way that that was done is just really insulting. It is. There's also a psychologist out of San Diego State University, Jean Twenge. Um, She's been looking into a lot of the cyberbullying. She's also looking at the issue of sleep deprivation as related to being on phones all the time. Um, Insomnia is also linked to suicidal ideation. Um, but she's talking about these factors basically just affecting teens' mental health. And there's a study that supported some of her correlations saying that teens who spend more time on their phones are suffering from more depression symptomology. So, did, I mean, it's did, all... Did they uh, differentiate into male versus female? No. Because that, that was an article that had come up in one of the presentations I did last year that I found very interesting is that it backs up everything you're saying, but it further differentiates between male and female adolescents because they were saying that young women, girls, will be completely sleep deprived because they're up chatting for hours and hours till like three, four in the morning for these non-ending conversations. And then, I mean, I'm sure there's also an aspect to it of, you know, being exposed to blue light and the, you know, the light waves that your retinas are picking up and sending like this conflicting information about your sleep cycle to your brain. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's something that really, you know, I mean, as if you're as a parent, I think that that would be something that would be wise for parents to understand is that they need to, excuse me, they need to lock those phones up at 9 o'clock at night and they get them back in the morning or, yeah. you know, lock down all the computer access and get your sleep. Right, because at some point the parents have to go to sleep too. You can't right. go check on your kid every hour to see if they're still on their phone. So, all right. But I wanted to add something also mm-hmm. about that that is really important. This is something that, you know, having come from um, a, a pretty substantial career in entertainment, I'd still live in that world, you know, through uh, my circle of friends and people that are still in it. And I was so furious when 13 Reasons Why came out mm. because I remember watching the first episode and thinking, shit, they did not think this through. They really did not think this through. And what was really I mean, and it, there was a uh, God. There was a twenty-eight point nine percent increase in suicide rates among teenagers. That's really, really significant. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In, it, like in what period of time following? It was um, associated um, between the ages of ten and seventeen in the month 
that it was released the month following the release, which was April 2017. Jesus Christ. And the idea that, like, there are so many things in entertainment, and, like, I get it if you have a good idea, and certainly that was an important message. I get what they thought they were doing. But to not think it through was really, really bad. But do you think it was not thinking it through, or do you think someone was like, okay, we thought it through, but this is going to be a gold mine? I, I don't know. I hope not. I, I hope not, but I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. So that, that the other thing is um, there are some really, really great articles. One of them uh, that I highly recommend if anybody wants to go back to uh, October 30th, 2018, Time Magazine did an article on uh, Generation Z talking about the the levels of stress in today's youth mm-hmm. and 90% of the individuals polled that fit that age generation, 90%, you know, reported unbelievably high levels of stress. And I, we know from a, a study that was done in the mid nineties that basically the amount of stress that today's high schoolers are under is what would have put people in an institution in the 50s. Right, right. But we just keep boiling the frog. We keep turning yep. up the heat and we've got, we've got you know, longer work days, you know, um, lower wages, increased costs all across the country. I mean, we, we're going through a very difficult time. These are all factors that affect... So in the 50s, you and I could have met in a mental institution. Oh, we totally could have. We would have been been, there. Oh, my God. We would have been doing musical numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did do ballroom dancing when the power at our internship went out. That was great. I I know. I I put on my boom box and we did the (laughs) cha-cha. It was awesome. Okay. So our Instagram follower at underscore m.aci asks, what's the best part of your job and what's the worst part of your job? You, go ahead. You want to go? Why don't you start? So, um, I don't want to jinx it, so I'm I'm knocking on um, vinyl wood right now. <laughs> I l- love my job. Like the, every the, time I say that, I feel like an asshole. Like really, who loves their job? But I do. Dude, I catch myself <laughs> driving home at work from night going. I love my job. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, I get to work with amazing. I'm not saying that it's perfect all the time and there are difficult things, but the best part of my job is I'm doing something that I am so suited for. And it makes me feel like I wish everyone took the time not necessarily to look just at what your dreams are and what your aspirations are, but to really think about how do you want to feel in your job? Not about how you want to feel about yourself or what you think that that job is going to bring you materially, which is important. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to pay your bills. I get it. But the idea of like, I, I just feel like I'm a puzzle piece that just found Same. its slot. Same. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I want that for everyone. And if and, and this is what I would say to anybody is like, if you're having any doubts about what you do, go find an expensive career counselor and whatever you pay, whatever you got to pay to get a battery of tests and get that evaluation. I happened to fall into this after a terrible seven month gig at another place that was not the right fit for me. It was just not the right fit. 
Plus, so, but I just love. I mean, I, what I, makes you love it? What is the best part? So, through the day job, okay. So, my small private practice, I love the intimacy of doing personal therapy work, and I love not doing it full time. I love yep. that I have eight clients a week. Um, a couple of them half time, you know, every couple of weeks that I get to dive deep into the human condition. And I work from when I'm in, in private practice, I work um, from a modality called narrative. So although I pull from all these other different sort of modalities and trainings, what I do is I always tell my clients, look, you may feel off balance right now, but you're still the expert in your life. You have expertise that you don't know you have. And I'm on the journey with you. I've got some expertise and I've got a perspective that may help you see things in a different way, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do. Or there are going to be times that we're going to sit and we're going to argue about things. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the way I do therapy. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. I mean, I love that part of it. And then in the day job I do here, um, working with law enforcement and the 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 community is it is incredibly stimulating, and I never know what I'm coming into. Like it could be something that is evaluating a stalker, um, getting services to someone who came here from another country and got lost in the system in Skid Row, and we're figuring out what's going on with them and how we can help them. It's something different. And I'm also handling, as weird as this sounds, I have like 10 of those cases going simultaneously. Right. It's it's amazing. I just love it. And it's fun because it's figuring something out. It's it, it really... It's strategy. I mean, you're doing investigative work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from a psychological perspective, what more else could you want? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that, like, I could get a case and I may be talking to the head of a psychiatric hospital in Ohio, and then I might be talking to the a psychiatrist at a hospital in another state, and then I may be talking to the FBI, you know, their branch in Austin, tying all of these things together, trying to figure out what's going on in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's so stimulating. I just yeah. love it. Yeah. So I think mine logistically for me, it's the variety of my job. Right. It, a variety is key for me. I will get bored even if I'm doing something that I love, but if it's the same thing. Um, it, even prior to this, though, I was doing individual, I was doing group, I was doing assessment. Um, that's enough variety for me. But this is variety in just a different way. It's me getting out of the office. I get to see clients. I get to do my clinical work. And that's sort of like a different thing every day as well. Um, but then I get to go to a division and, you know, walk around and kind of do my rounds and talk about how things are going with the captains. And then I get to be on call once a quarter and go out with a SWAT team and sit in an armored vehicle with a vest on and talk about negotiations. So, I mean, it, that if I had to pick one piece, like that's the most fun part, it is also the most exhausting and yeah. come in the middle of the night. So I'm glad Because the stakes are very high. The stakes are very high and... Um, yeah, it's just it's nice not to have to be woken up in the middle of the night all the time and and but I love it. I love it. Um I think about I'm just going to pinpoint on the clinical side whether it's here or in my private practice too. I think when 
when something just clicks with the client and they're finally putting in the effort to help themselves with their own mental wellness, I just love that little turning point. I, I don't even know what to call it. I, I'm not a parent. Right. But it feels to me very parental. And I don't, and I don't want to say that. I don't mean that in a diminishing way to no. any of my clients. But when you see someone make the connection and the light goes on for them and they integrate like information that they've you've been discussing with them for two years, right. but they haven't gotten to a point where they were allowing themselves for it all to come together, and then you're there. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I love it. it. It is. There's just you just sort of sit back and you're like, yes, this is what all of this has been for, and that's just a really neat feeling. Um, other than that, the people that I get to work with on a daily basis, on projects, on, you know, just that I interface with are just the best people at this agency. They're just, they're fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I was late here because I ran into somebody walking from the parking structure to here that I had to stop and chat with that, you know, I knew from one of my divisions. But um, it, you just get to meet some really neat people and do some really neat things. Yeah. So, so what's the hardest part for you? Um I'm going to pinpoint this directly to working in law enforcement psychology, but it was hard to come up with one, again, because we love our jobs. Um, But I think it's that sinking feeling when I hear about something bad happening, like an officer being involved in a shooting or getting injured on the job. And sometimes I hear it on the news first. You know, sometimes it's on the weekend or it's at night or it's the first news story in the morning and I haven't checked my email yet and I don't know yet. And um, one, I think it's the, ooh, is this somebody that I know personally? Um, Or um, just knowing that there's an entire... Family, meaning like blood family, but also the bigger family of law enforcement that is going to be impacted by this person's injury or death um, or very traumatic situation. I mean, they may not be, you know, killed or necessarily injured, but being that I have been through two shootings and I've been in critical incidents and traumatic situations, I know what that's like. And so I think hearing that kind of gives me that sinking feeling until... You know, I hear that they're okay or I get a little bit more information about how we can help. Um, So that weaves back into the great part about my job is at least I can do something about it. Yeah. You have some facility. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, the hardest part, there are a couple of aspects. One is that... for when In private practice, it's not hard for me to take a step back and brush it off. I mean, part of, part of becoming a therapist, whether you're a social worker, an MFT, or a psychologist, your training teaches you to keep an emotional distance, a healthy emotional distance and healthy boundaries so that you don't walk home at the end of the night. I mean, like, and I've worked with really difficult clients that were very unstable over a period of years. But I can't carry that stuff home. And I did as a younger clinician, as a a less experienced clinician. And it takes a toll on you. I mean, it was not good. And I've learned to 
I've learned something very important is that you have to accept that at the end of the session, as long as there's not an emergency, as long as you're not worried about, concerned about danger to self or danger to others, is that you have to let it go and you have to do it for yourself and you actually have to do it for them so that they can learn. You know, it's like if you have someone that like wants to call you six times a week and I want to touch in, you know, and you putting those boundaries as difficult as that is, is what's really healthy for them. So it, that was very hard for me at the beginning. Right. But in the day job, I think the hardest thing is that, you know, for the successes that we have, we have so many people that disappear off the map. I don't mean like I was saying earlier, like missing 411. <laughs> but I mean, people that like everything is in place for you. I mean, look, we we live in Southern California and there is no better place to have challenges with your mental health than Southern California. You cannot swing a cat by a tail without hitting a therapist on a corner. Right. I'm telling you. Or just the social resources. But you, Exactly. And if you are lower income, you have all of an enormous, probably the largest mental health organization with amazing, amazing clinicians and administration. And you know, but seeing people that are not ready to do it, not ready to take that step to to move forward um, is really difficult. And, you know, sometimes it's because of addiction. You know, addiction is a, a huge challenge here for it's across the country. But um, watching the impact of meth on uh, the lower income populations of Southern California is real has really that's a difficult one for me. And just when you just don't know when all the things are set up for someone to take advantage of and then for some reason they drop off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our next com question comes from Sasha. She's a listener. And she says, I was wondering if you could explain more about the psychology of someone interested in the genre of true crime. So I, I didn't do any research on this. I just thought. I would talk more off the cuff, um, but I know this has come up a lot lately, especially because, you know, true crime is sort of having its moment. Right. Um, it's starting so, to get asked a lot, and we talked a little yeah. bit about it with um, Rebecca. Right, right. I think we were talking—were we talking more specifically about women being interested in true crime? I think so. Yeah. And there is—I mean, and there is. There's well, there there is, certainly—I yeah. mean, the, the true crime genre— if women were not so interested in it, it would not be probably mm -hmm. the top most popular genre in podcasts now because, you know, women are listening um, and and supporting it. And we have a lot of really fantastic female podcast hosts that yeah. have found a voice in this genre. It's kind oh, of amazing. Absolutely. You know, there's there's some not so great stuff out there. But I mean, I'm, I'm continually yeah. impressed by like finding another one that's yeah, like, there's not enough oh my time God. to listen to the ones that do. And you would, me. and you would think that people would run out of material, but there's like, for one thing, it's like, oh my God, there's more crime than I ever thought of. Well, it's like, it's a little wow. Concerning, but yeah, it's, it, it's hard for me to put myself like to say, okay, what is it about it that interests me? Because I come from a family where it was just part of their career to work in the area of true crime um, and law enforcement. So it's hard for me to say this is why when people ask, how'd you get into it? It was just always there. I guess, you know, my sister is consumed some of it, but it's not like she went into a career or anything like that right. with it. Um, but 
I, I don't know what it is. I, I think those of us where this is our interest, we ask this question because probably at some point we're like, well, are we a weirdo because we like this? Oh, no, now we've found our people, <laughs> so it's okay to talk about. Um, but I wonder if you really looked at the numbers of different interests, would it be so different? And is I it just because it, it is is a, a weird topic or a taboo topic or it's about human suffering that makes us feel like it's weird to be interested in it? And that's a more interesting you know, oh, that is that is a very, very interesting perspective. Like, why are, or honestly, why are we even asking the question? Yeah, like because I mean, people are into bird watching. Like, okay, <laughs> what makes one person interested in something and not interested in something else? Well, I mean, you know, we remember years ago we went to the Heritage Square the first time, and it was right. all about Victorian death yeah. rituals and right. sort of like. You know, the reality of death up until the 20th century was, you know, you had to have a lot of kids because if you didn't, you know, most it's likely that a good third of them are going to die. Right. You know, they just previous generations had a different relationship to death and survival. Right. Than than our current world does than our current culture. So I think that that is informs part of it is that that we look at it in a different way, like. You know, murder was just something different in the past. And certainly if it was murder of women or murder of children, it was different because those were marginalized communities. But there is a great Mental Floss article. And Mental Floss is either hit or miss. But we'll post this. Um, They they do some good receipts. One of the ones that I was really glad they brought up was um, a law review that was written by Megan Borsma that – um, the study shows that um, one of the main theories is that women are drawn to true crime because it's preparational. And that may actually be really, and I use this term a lot, a biological imperative mm-hmm. that women have an innate sense of because they have to protect and nurture their young, that they have to be more situationally aware, and that watching true crime is almost like it feels like it's preparation. Right. And, I mean, and actually I think there's truth to it. I mean, it's really hilarious when you go on some of the message boards for different podcasts and everybody's going, you know, we all talk about how forensics files has changed everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, you idiot. Why? Right. Why would you dismember the body in the house? Yeah. Like, that's just, you know, they're going to sp- spray luminol. Like, everybody. Just strangle them so there's no blood. Exactly. What's wrong you, with you? Because everybody has this, you know, has like a, a vocabulary over the past 10 years that has continued to increase, especially with things like CSI. Right. But also, I think one of the basic levels is that evil fascinates us. Yeah. Especially like if you are a person that is compassionate and you care about people, the idea of being evil on one hand is almost like a psychological release, like the fantasy of it, sort of like when we have intrusive thoughts about, oh, my gosh, this baby is so cute. I want to bite this baby. Yeah. Like because it's there's a different area of of our brain that is crossed. I mean, the, the baby biting thing actually is a thing. It's mm-hmm. that our we're getting crossed wires in our brain because it's cuteness overload and right. the cuteness overload is stimulating 
areas that are generally associated with eating and survival. Oh, my gosh. I want to bite Baby Yoda from Mandalorian. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the memes are unending. Hilarious. They're so good. They're so good. <laughs> we Can't Look Away from a Train Wreck mm-hmm. um, is another one. Well, also, you know, we were talking about your job earlier and the intrigue and the strategy. And it's a mystery. It's something to figure out. You know, we kind of... We like that. There's a beginning, middle, and end to most stories and, you know, an episode of Dateline or Forensic Files. Um, and and that, I think there's, that's also human nature to sort of have this thing to figure out and that you like. Um, so... I yeah. don't know. I don't have any research-backed stuff to give you, Sarah, um, but I think it's really interesting. Well, there's also, like, a very primitive, you know, not so much the, you know, before there were sitcoms and before there were, you know, the sort of the ubiquity of different forms of entertainment, if we go back to the most primitive civilizations of how we evolved as a species, storytelling has always been at the center of oral tradition and cautionary tales like, the, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, the original ones, are bloody, yeah. right? And they were told and they were written in that way so that children would learn a lesson and the adults would remember them because that helped you survive as well. So I there think that that being part of it, I think that's that's a big part of it. For me, you know, you talked about how you... We're born into it. Born into it, right, <laughs> from being in a law enforcement family. You know, I wasn't. I mean, it was it, – I did not read um, murder mysteries. I didn't. I But I – my entire family was brought into it because of a crime. Right. And it was jarring to all of us, and it, it changed the course of our – all of our lives. And I – you know, it was a, a horrific thing that I wish had never happened because people were hurt – Families were hurt for generations, but the other side of it is, is that, that where we are now is, you know, you, where you are right now in your life is a result of the crucible that you went through at another time. So, you know, I don't have regrets except for, you know, the victims of the crime. Sure. Um, but that that certainly was my intro into it where I would just started – I started seeing life through a different lens, and I think that my pull towards true crime – and even switching into this career was so that I could understand the motivations of human behavior when and it's it's also like that looking at, you know, and Leah, we had a fantastic um, mm-hmm. supervisor when we first met Dr. Leah Chankin. Um, and one of the most simple but jarring things she ever said to me when I was trying to understand something horrible that a client had done. And yet. I didn't think that the client was a bad person, but he had done a terrible, terrible thing. And, you know, she had the most simple response, which was, Scott, good people do bad things, and sometimes bad people do good things. Right. So it was that idea that you had to pull yourself back from black and white thinking in, t- in, in order to really understand the world that you live in. Yeah, so much about it. I think it, the true crime popularity now is challenging that and in, in giving an empathetic look at some of this stuff. Like we've talked so much about, people are starting to peel back layers and realize, okay, I can't just put this person in the box of 
terrible, evil monster, whatever. Um, let me actually see what's going on here. How did they get there? Yeah. Even if it was a crime of passion and they, quote unquote, should have known better. Well, let's look back. And I'm not saying that, like, let's let's absolve them of responsibility. But I'm saying let's look at the context. How did this person get here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me. It is. Good question. Our second question from Sasha, who happens to be a middle school teacher, she wants to know, is there anything educators can better do to prevent future violence? So I'm going to take that one because it's basically what I, a big chunk of what I do uh, in my day job. So Sasha, one of the, the most important thing is collaboration and integration of resources. And what I mean by that is if you're working in a public school system uh, or on, at a charter or a magnet or a private school, regardless of what environment it is, there has to be open lines of communication. And that necessarily can't come from the educators themselves. Like, it has to come from the top down. Where And I I mean, I think that an educator who sees a necessity for this can certainly be an advocate and can can, um, inspire change in a system. But it is absolutely necessary for schools to have a plan of assessing when threats are present. And there's tons of resources online. I mean, there are, even if you are working at a rural school, in the middle of nowhere, and you've got you think you've got limited resources. There are in, in, incredible threat assessment and prevention plans available online through educational organizations. It's just a matter of getting people, everybody tied, everybody tied in. Mm-hmm. Because if you have one administrator who says, "Well, that's never going to happen here," oh lord, you know that that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a real problem. Yeah, but it's about. Educators educating themselves on what is problematic. And I often say this to um, cops that I work with, and I also believe very strongly that educators have this as well. If you're an educator and you've been doing it for more than three years, you already have a built-in radar, a built-in sixth sense for when something is off. And so when something it feels off about a student, then you have to investigate further. You have to go the extra mile and find out what's going on at home and see what the baseline for behaviors are. And if there are things that are concerning, and basically if you're a true crime fan, you know, you can you can basically identify those things. If a yeah. kid is preoccupied with violence, uh, that's, Talking about death or dying a lot. That's a marker. If a if suddenly there's a a, a, a massive change in a child's behavior, certainly in, in women and young women, girls, if you see a change in hygiene, that is a really really strong indicator that something's going on. Um, not it could be just depression or it could be molestation, but that's a major marker um, right. because young girls are usually socialized very well for grooming and mm-hmm. hygiene. Um, Do schools have essentially like 
threat assessment consultants? You, they can hire. Okay. They can hire threat assessment consultants. and But it also depends. I mean, we're lucky here. I mean, LAUSD has unbelievable programs. They have their own police force. They have their own police threat assessment team. Department of Mental Health and works with LAUSD in, ama- in an amazing program called START, which is a strategic threat response evaluation and assessment team. And it used to be school, but they've kind of expanded. And they are headed by amazing supervisors and amazing clinicians, and they jump on these things, you know, whenever there's right. a potential threat. But you know, the, so we have a system in place, and if you don't have a system in place, then what I would say is you need to collaborate with some of your other teachers, and you need to go to the school board and say, "What do we have in place?" Because this is going to happen, and, and that's—I mean, it's, it's a—it's a frightening and unfortunate truth about the Today's culture today. Age, yeah. You know, and regardless of how you feel about gun rights or gun ownership since the assault weapon ban was dropped that's when we saw the increase in in these kind of things and so and I don't think that the answer is arming teachers oh no I don't think you so know, you you arm your teachers with information <laughs> so having a threat response team having mental health resources in the school for children is immensely important and if you don't have the money to do it, then you guys are going to have to find a way to connect with another agency that will do it. And it could be going to the PTA, going to the school board, and saying, hey, look, there's this whole booklet online for teachers and schools on how to prepare for these things. That's what I, I mean. That's, that's an overview. There are, like, specific things that we could talk about it. But, you know... The important thing is to not let anybody bury it. And um, one of the challenges in private schools is that private schools are driven financial forces, and they need to keep money coming in, and they want to keep their reputation clean. So they may have a tendency to bury or hide those kind of influences, and that only perpetrates the problem, I think. So look, you know, learn what to look for in problematic situations in the environment. Look for resources online, of which there are tons, and if you need any, I'll, you know, look some up for you. And also keep open the lines of communication. If you're seeing something that's problematic, then you consult with your colleagues, you consult with administration, and don't let anybody tell you no when you know what you're talking about. So Michelle from Facebook asks, how do you prevent your work from bleeding into your personal and family lives without sacrificing your own brain health? I love the way she formed this question. First of all, um, I teach a lot about this, excuse me, in stress management courses for law enforcement, and I hate the term work-life balance because it will never be balanced, and I think it's an unreasonable expectation. That's really a good point. To put on ourselves. So I do talk about bleed over, actually, in the ways that our work can bleed over into family life and vice versa, actually. Um, But I usually like to talk about how to blend the two, work-life blend instead of work-life balance, because one is always going to be demanding more of you than the other at any given time, and that will change. You just have to figure out what works for you and your family. Um, So personally, I tend to compartmentalize well just kind of naturally. Um, I think even before I worked in law enforcement, 
but I'm sure that absolutely helped. <laughs> um, but also, I think what we're really talking about is just self-care here and how do we take care of ourselves. So um, do you want to share a little bit about what you do for self-care? I mean, I work out a lot. A lot thought to? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do, I give thought to it, especially I, I'm very, from my previous incarnations of a career, I'm very body aware. Mm-hmm. So I have things that tell me when I'm off and I recognize it. Like, you know, if I'm having... Um, I go through the HALT model, for one thing, is that HALT, H-A-L-T, is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Right. So, and hungry also means thirsty. And like, what's crazy to me is that I, because I go into these these kind of, if I'm at home working on a project, I can go into the zone. Or if I'm at work, I can go into the zone. And I'll, after a couple of hours that will magically disappear, I'll suddenly be like, feel off. And mm-hmm. the first thing I'm like, wait, am I hydrated? Right. You know, so basically that's just a – I do try and hit a balance between hitting all of those corners. Like, have I taken my vitamins? Have I exercised? Have I stretched? Have I done a couple of yoga poses? And sometimes Mm -hmm. in the middle of the day I'll come in here in in this little (laughs) interrogation room and I'll do about five minutes of yoga or breathing. That's awesome. But also, you know, having good friends, Mm -hmm. you know, that you can reach out to. I mean, you're a social – Life is very important, even though I think it's it's hard to be a hard party or anything when we have careers like this and in today's world. But having a social circle, reaching out to family, having hobbies, um, and I really I want to go back to what you were saying. I really like the idea that you're saying that there, it's not going to be in balance, and and putting that pressure on yourself to think that there is a balance is unrealistic. But what we can do. If we can't balance it, you can at least make the decision to pull away from things that are really out of balance. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. And sometimes things really do get out of balance and pull away from it. I mean, ultimately, if you pull away and disengage emotionally and intellectually, you have a better idea of looking at the true perspective Mm -hmm. and where you need to put your time and your energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think... It's not just about self-care. My self-care is pretty basic. Like, for me, I have to take a bath every single night. I know there's, like, a thousand memes that are, like, self-care is not taking bubble baths. For Shiloh, it is. (laughs) It's I get 20 minutes where I don't have to talk to anyone. Don't bother mommy. You know, this is my downtime for the evening. Um, But I—and I don't need much more than that. I, I need it every day on my work days, but spending time with my family and my friends is what I have on the other days. I think it's also about, we're talking about boundaries here that you're setting for yourself between work and home and those not bleeding over. Um, I don't take any literal work home with me. I don't um, write notes from home. I don't say, oh my gosh, I can't finish this in my work day. I'll just do it at home tonight. I don't do any of that. Um, I could have notes piling up on my desk, but I'll get them all done on Friday uh, before I leave the office. I have done—you just have to find what little boundaries work for you. When I first started this job, you know, I was able to hook up my email, so it alerted me on my cell phone. I took those alerts off 
because I felt a pull to look at it and see what it was every time that little red dot lit up. Yeah. So I turn that off. If I want to look at it, I look at it. Great. Um, I also, you know, my husband and I have, depending on positions we have worked in, there has to be understanding with your family, too, about it. So he's worked positions where he's been on call, and that means that phone's going to ring in the middle of the night, and I can't get upset about it. That's that's what he's doing and what he loves to do. Um, now I'm the one that's on call sometimes. So my phone's going to be ringing. Emails are going to be buzzing through. I can't turn it, you know, put it on silent mode. And we just have an understanding and support that that's fine and that works and that's what we're doing. So I see it cause a lot of problems in relationships when um, the work is coming home too much. And I think just each individual person have to, has to see what works for them. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it's a hybrid of, of self-care and boundaries. Um, I have great social support um, with friends and family. Um other than that, I think having a creative outlet is really great. I feel like this is our creative. This is part. Yeah. This is it for me. I haven't. I went many years of my life without having a creative outlet, um, and really didn't discover that that was something that I needed until um, I don't know. Several years ago, I started that like travel advice and um, a travel career blog. advice yeah. and travel blog um, that was just for me. And it was just an enjoyable hobby to have, but it was creative, which I haven't done a, a lot of. I don't think I'm a very creative person, but um, anyway. That's... I think you're creative. I also, I, I mean, well, I don't just think it. I know you're creative, but one of the things I would also say is that you're you're also very resilient. And I think that, I mean, I know your parents, you come from kind of amazing, resilient parents. Um, I did not come from that. <laughs> I have learned to be resilient and I have. Which you can do, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can absolutely learn can to do build it. build it. And I also have an appreciation that some of my, my best superpowers come from being raised hypervigilant. You know, it's okay. not maybe I have, you know, you learn to harness the those things so that they don't kill you. But, you know, once again, like I said before earlier, the idea that the crucible of where we came from brings us to where we are and mm-hmm. we have a choice of whether to right. to um, address and make the best of those things. I if it bleeds over like i don't like i i can't take work home like i i physically can't because of hipaa like like sure, we, you nothing can bring a chart home. yeah nothing leaves this building um so it's more about you know not bringing it home emotionally but right. in my private practice there will be times where if i see a client at the end of a 15 hour day mm-hmm. and it's 9 p.m. you know every couple of months I will take a Saturday and I'll take six hours of a Saturday, close the door to my study, you know, put my headphones on and I'll churn through not only bills and other things that have to get done and, you know, looking at retirement and banking, but I'll churn out those notes and make sure I'm, you know, on course with my treatment plans for clients. But, but that's very rare. It's not like it's every night. And I would want for people, I would want for everyone in whatever career you're in to not have to do that. And I think that's a difficult thing because electronics have made people 
have made a lot of corporations feel like they can call people. It's interesting. Europe is passing laws Good. right yeah. now. They're passing laws as we speak that employers cannot contact you after work hours by any means. And I think that's the way it should be. It's the right. way it always was in the past. Of it's course. only, you know, in the last 30 years this has been happening. And I want to say that it's not as if it hasn't ever happened to me as far as the bleed right. over and taking it home. And I know you already talked about how you had to, you know, learn how to not take stuff home. Um, it absolutely has, whether it's been a traumatic incident that I've been involved in or it's been something clinical, like working with individuals who offend sexually, um, that once I became a mom, I was like, oh, my God, I'm thinking about this one case right. like all night or whatever. Um, it happens. It happens here and there. But there are things you can do to sort of buffer that and help yourself bounce back from it easier. So, yeah, good question. Um, here's a fun question again from um, our Instagram follower underscore M dot ACI. What's your favorite music to listen to when you don't need to get anything done? Oh, I read that wrong. How'd you read it? I thought it was like, what, what do you, what's your favorite music to listen to when you're, I, you know, you, I do you need to get something. Yeah, I, I did. Well, let's hear both of your answers. Okay. So <laughs> that's interesting. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it's interesting because my, my husband is a, a real musician and a music aficionado and wait, he's a musician. Yeah. He plays piano and not. you know what else? He plays accordion. Did I never tell you that? What? Yeah, I think that's what he's going to get for um, Christmas this year. He hasn't played in years, but oh how God. hilarious would that be? We could hook him up, him and Deb up. I know. A concert. They need to do a duet. But um, I, because of my ADD, um, I have discovered that I can put myself into an unbelievable work mode for writing evaluations and writing reports and doing that kind of work by using uh, trance and electronic dance I music. I love you. I love you. I mean, it just, because there's not a predominant melody, but there's a beat. Um, and I also will use that with an app that I love, and I've been using it for 10 years. It got me through my dissertation and all my licensure studying, uh, Binaural Beat Brainwave. And I turn you on to it yeah. for studying for the exams. Yep. Um, Brainwave is this sort of pseudoscience. I don't know if it's real or not. If it's if it's um, no, placebo it, effect, it, there's a setting for sleep that will knock me out. There's a sledding, setting for meditation. There's a setting for concentration. And you can combine it with music. Mm -hmm. So that's when I want to get things done. When I don't want to get anything done or I'm relaxing, it's Pandora Pink Martini. Pink Martini <laughs> channel is awesome. Pink Martini, if you don't, if you guys don't know, it's fantastic. It's this group of musicians that all met each other like over 20 years ago at Berkeley. They were all like theater and music students at Berkeley, I think. Okay. And they were all into kitschy retro lounge music. And so they oh realized that they were all musicians and they do... This fantastic, kitschy, but amazing world cocktail music. So what? they take aspects from all over there at the Hollywood Bowl. Do you ever listen to them? No, I've never even heard of them. I can't believe you haven't heard of Pink Martini. No. Oh, my God. They're fantastic. <laughs> they're fantastic. Okay, on the way home tonight. Yeah, put, it, put on the Pandora Pink Martini. Okay, so when I don't need to get anything done, so I kind of thought of, like, what is my go-to music when I'm just, like, 
what do I want to listen to? Um, God, I've already made one mention of Tupac and Biggie, but I am your classic 40-year-old basic bitch from Southern California. I love my 90s hip-hop. <laughs> I love, love, love my 90s hip-hop. That would be my go-to, but... Um, even at this age, I am a huge EDM fan, and you know it. I mean, I go to my festival every year, and that's my thing. But to me, it's what I have on my speaker in the middle of summertime out at my pool all day long. And so when I'm thinking about, like, doing nothing, just laying in the pool or laying by the pool, that's absolutely what I – like, it's summertime to me, which is my favorite thing in the world. So I'll confess also is back back in the day in back the in, 80s and 90s. When EDM started. When, when I was – when I was – partying with my best friends with that group of partiers like I have flashbacks to it mm-hmm. I have like full on neurological euphoric flashbacks and, and they're great aren't they're they? awesome they are awesome <laughs> but it's it's great stuff I mean I mean I, I enjoy it but it, it does put me in and I think it has to do with it's not necessarily relaxing to me but it focuses right. and for for people for people that if you don't have ADHD, but you have relatives or friends who have ADHD, you, it's really important to understand that f- focus can be so alien. The thing that comes to neuronormative people that you know can just turn focus on and mm-hmm. off, that it's so difficult for us at times. And I have cognitive behavioral skills that I've put in place for decades that really work for me. But when the music turns on and flips that switch in my brain to help me focus. It's euphoric. It is. You feel fantastic because you know you're you're in flow. Mm-hmm. It's it's just amazing. Well, and I didn't think about this until now that you and I both have dance backgrounds yes. as well. So yeah. I wonder if that's a piece of um, just like it fulfills something for us yeah. as well. So. Well, I talked about like I my cousin. Uh, who lives in my hometown, and her daughter is a ballerina with the company that I got a scholarship with oh, wow. generations ago in Alabama. Oh, neat. And she's an accomplished dancer, and she was writing. My cousin was my cousin's daughter is, is a accomplished dancer, and my cousin was writing a blog for Alabama School of Fine Arts, or make something about like, hey, dancers. X dancers, how did dance change your life? And I wrote a, a really long piece about how I didn't know that I had ADHD then. And I wasn't, a, I mean, I swam competitively, but I didn't play other competitive sports except for track and field. Mm-hmm. And when I started dancing, my grades went up. All wow. of my grades went up. Like I had been a solid B student and I went solidly into a range when I started dance training. So, yeah, it, it, you know, and I wasn't raised in a, in a house that had music. I mean, like we, you know, people listen to music, but it wasn't like, there are some homes that have music on all the time, which you should, because it's fantastic for your kids development of math skills. But yeah, I mean, Hmm. I have, can't say enough good things about having music in your life. Yeah. And my favorites are trance and deep house. If anybody cares. Um, Okay. Let's get back to something more psychological here. So let's see. This is from our listener, Kat, from Melbourne, Australia. And I know I said that right. 
Melbourne. Melbourne. Is that the correct way to uh-huh. say it? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So Cat is referring to a documentary. It's called A Place for Pedophiles, and it was done by the BBC several years ago. Um, Louis Thoreau is the journalist that is sort of leading you through um, the documentary. And essentially, they are spending some time at Coalinga State Hospital here in California. Um, so Which is in the Central Valley. Coalinga State Hospital is in the Central Valley, middle of nowhere. And it is a place where we house our sexually violent predators. So the people who have been to prison for their sex crimes, and then they have been evaluated and determined that they have a mental health disorder that predisposes them to continuing to commit sex crimes. Therefore, we lock them up forever. So just to mm-hmm. to add on to that, so you're, what we're talking about is, say, uh, SVP, a sexual violent, sexually violent predator, is adjudicated for a crime. They may be given a sentence of 18 years for a crime, and then maybe they get, it gets adjusted down for whatever reason. They complete their term. There is a process in place to evaluate whether or not they are still a danger Mm -hmm. to the community, which means they're done with their prison sentence, but they can still be locked up now in a psychiatric facility. Right. It's still incarcerated. I will say this. If you're going to be locked up someplace, Koalinga is like it's the newest of the facilities, and it's kind of amazing. Well, it looks like a mall. Yeah. You know, you you see it in the documentary. You walk down the hallway, and there's a barbershop, and then there's, you know, other little stores and— yeah, the, the music room, they, they have like a full, oh, you know, yeah. you can learn to play an orchestra instrument. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. So individuals in this program can choose whether or not to participate in sex offender treatment. It's a phase program. And essentially, if you go through all the phases successfully, you can work your way back out into the community. Now, you're heavily monitored if you're back out in the community, and that's kind of the final phase. Um, Most individuals make it out to the community through legal means, through legal, you know, fighting loopholes, different ways. Not many people, 30% of the population actually opts to go through the program, 70% are just sitting there saying, I'm going to be here forever. You can't make me do treatment. So So interesting. (laughs) So this documentary is about Coalinga State Hospital. I mean, I know people who work there now that I went to school with. Um, I've known people who have worked there and left. So there's an interaction in which a inmate... I don't even think they call them inmates. I don't know what they call them. They're patients, right? Or residents? Residents might be it. Um, But he is speaking with the journalist and the head psychologist of Coalinga State Hospital. And essentially, they're talking to him because he walked out of his polygraph. So they get polygraphed a number of times a year to determine sort of where they are in treatment. And so they're basically asking him, interviewing about this. And he says, I was going to lie on the polygraph. I actually have some things to hide. I was afraid I was going to lie, and I was going to try to trick it. I put antiperspirant on my hands. <laughs> so the the psychologist who's standing there, she asks him, um, tell us what went into your decision-making to be deceptive. And his reaction 
um, is what our, our listener is acting asking about. She says, my question to you is what is your professional and therapeutic response to this clinician's behavior or response? Is she overreacting to Mr. Price's behavior or, isn't it or is it reasonable and therapeutic response to his behavior that a layperson such as myself or the journalist is not aware of? So she asks, what went into your decision-making? Good question for the documentary. And he immediately starts to shift blame and says, well, you know, I, I don't even know anything about the polygraph. I was supposed to have an orientation. I haven't had an orientation. I asked for an orientation. No one's given that to me. And I was nervous. And I, I was probably going to end up saying more than I wanted to say. So she then responds by pointing out that he's becoming defensive. And he, I'm not saying his tone is high. He's not yelling. He's not being threatening in any way. Um, but she points out you're getting defensive. You're starting to blame others, um, which we know is a cognitive distortion when people aren't ready to take responsibility for their own stuff. They start pointing fingers. And she says, he, she says, you know, you're starting to point fingers. And he comes back with a pretty snarky attitude and says, I haven't even begun to finger point. Let's not go there. And then he says, I think we better leave it alone. And it's a very neutral tone. So I could get how later she's being interviewed and she says that he was being very aggressive. Um, and I don't think it's aggressive in the way someone who hasn't worked with inmates right. would get. I, I, I think the turning point is when he says, I haven't begun to finger point. To me... He's backed up in a corner. Yeah. He's feeling super defensive, and now he's starting to challenge a little bit. He's sort of starting to to show his bravado, and how can I kind of stick one to this person that's making me feel uncomfortable in a so subtle way? One of the things that you're talking about that I want to reflect on is when it comes to aggression, you're illustrating that he's backed into a corner, and it's about the content is what makes it aggressive. It's not the affect. I think Thank that you. may yeah. be what she, what what Cat is responding to, is that he doesn't raise his voice. He's maintaining an overall neutral body affect and tone. But this is a clinician that has worked closely with him for a period of time. She's a specialist in this particular area, and so it may be that the layperson doesn't recognize right. those markers, right? Yes, and. And I think when he says, I think we better leave it alone, to me, that's a complete veiled threat. Oh, it's that absolutely like a, is. Or what yeah. comes after He's that. He's actually saying, you better leave it alone. Right. And, and he continues to be oppositional by saying, well, you're not my clinician. Because she's not. She's not his clinician. She's the head of the department, and she's obviously the one showing this journalist around. But he starts to say, well, you're not even my clinician. I don't know why you're asking me this. Why? I, I don't even know why you're here. Can someone tell me why you're here? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, that's something that can easily get under your skin. And this this doctor, I, I've, I've taken trainings with her, and I, I, I know her from that community. She is. She's just like our other like supervisor Leah. you were talking about. Where you and I would be like, oh, <laughs> on the inside, she is cool as a cucumber. She does come off as very just um, non-reactive herself. And I think that can exhibit you know, maybe being cold 
or sort of overreacting when she's using these terms, but she's using them in a very clinical risk assessment type way that I absolutely would verbally or, or probably in a report. And I think you're hitting on something really important about you and I. I mean, part of the reason, whether it's coming from a performance background, Mm-hmm. Entertainment, creativity. We're also sharing aspects of our lives. I'm pretty. I'm known to be pretty gregarious. I mean, I think people sure. get a, an idea of kind of who I am. Yeah, certainly, I have a veneer, uh, the mask persona that we all have a version of that we prevent, present. But this is you, you guys get a really good sense by listening to this podcast of who we are. So we're representative of only one small spectrum of clinical skills and clinical abilities. Absolutely. And, you know, when you give the example of her possibly coming off in that way, when you're working with a violent population, you absolutely have to be non-reactive. Yep. It is absolutely necessary. And it was one of the things, like, I remember one of the stories I tell about interviewing for Leah is I came out of that interview, and look, I'm I'm a dancing monkey. (laughs) Like, I know how to interview. I know how to pull crap out of my butt and sparkle with jazz hands. I can do a good interview. And you get feedback in the moment from people, the head nodding, the smiling. Right, because I come from a hypervigilant household. I know how to read a room, and and now I reinforce what I'm reading. Uh And Leah didn't give us anything. Like, I walked out of there going, I didn't think immediately, oh, they hated me. I was like... What the fuck just happened? Like, they didn't play my game. How did I do? Yeah, so it was it was amazing, and I think that it's an illustration of what is was particularly interesting to Cat about this. Yeah, this interaction yeah. is that this clinician was being completely appropriate and professional with those boundaries, and what you saw was, like you said, veiled threats mm-hmm. and defensiveness. Because look, you know what. If it, what he could have done is he could have just come clean. Sure. Yes, I have been masturbating to these images. I I, I fantasized again. Mm-hmm. Just freaking come clean. Right. You know, right. Come, like you're 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 locked up in Koalinga. You're not going anywhere it's right not now. Be worse anyway, than anything we've heard today. It so. is not. I mean, it, that's that's the baseline there. In fact, you might even have gotten a couple of brownie points for like, okay, you know what? He actually told on himself. Oh, completely. Com- that that went way further for me than someone just denying everything. Right. Because um, at least you know what you're working with. But but yeah, I I I had actually forgotten about this documentary. I had seen it. And then um, when I went back and I was like, oh, okay, of course I know what this is because I I know Dr. DeRazio. Um, And it was really neat to sort of see that. But I also have interacted with her personally, so I know what kind of clinician she is. And she knows her shit, and she's really good at it. And she she is also in in this documentary. I mean, she's an administrator at that point. So I also understand the victim, or not victim, Jesus. I also understand Mr. Price and what's happening with him. He has a camera in his face asking him yet again about something that is incredibly shameful. And he does have a clinician there that's not his clinician. And, you know, it's kind of this this higher authority figure there. But everything she's asking is pretty proper and anyone, any other therapist would have asked it, even his own probably. So, 
there's it, it's it's a very interesting documentary. I, I totally um, and also aside, aside from the shame, there's nobody there at Koalinga that does not have a significant diagnosis on the spectrum of paraphilias. Oh yeah, you know it's it's a real thing. Yeah. So you know there's a lot, and I I'm glad you especially pointed out the camera thing. I th- I am very aware that you know even with the advent of reality television, there are people that will assume that they are who they are all the time consistently. And you don't understand that the effect of being observed immediately changes uh-huh. your interaction with the world around you. It's even it. They talk to other clinicians um, in one of the first ones. It's a it's super awkward. You're like, Jesus, does this person even know what they're doing? It, it is. And I'm sure they're better clinicians than what they present with a, them with a camera in their face when they're being asked these questions. And um, I, I can't imagine. And it's such high profile work. Well, it's a bunch of psychologists. Like, why why would you expect that any of them have had any experience being interviewed on camera? And also, it's a state facility. So there I would look if I'm just talking about my own experience and what I do, I'll sit and talk for 90 minutes as apparently like we're at 90 minutes right now. <laughs> but if I am representing the government agency that I work for, oh you better God, believe terrifying. that I am I'm under pressure because I represent. Yeah. In that moment, I represent a much larger entity than me. And believe me, you know, you say the wrong thing or you give the, you know. There's I nervous mean, laughter. There's right. like it, just stuff that is super uncomfortable, and it makes them look bad. It makes them. That's too bad. It, yeah, it is. But um, I feel like they would have been better served by being better if someone had prepared them. Absolutely. Ironically, he's like he's there saying, "Well, no one prepared me for the polygraph." Like, well, you know, they should have prepared the clinicians for that as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But check it out. You can find it online. All right, last question. This comes from Rebecca at Dialogue. She wanted to know, do we see therapists personally? Oh, right. Um, Yes, I do. Um, In my small private practice, I see two therapists. And it's amazing work. I mean, it's it's. I, I would not I think say she wants to know if we go to our own therapist. Oh, I read that wrong. Yeah, uh, I go for a tune-up at least twice a year, and every couple of years I'll go for about six weeks at a time. But I also had um, close to eighteen years of weekly therapy consistent um, with like maybe a six month break here or there if I was out of the country on tour or something. Right. Um, But it was uh, phenomenal. It changed my life. Do you think it's important as a clinician? Do you think that has anything to do with it or if it's more just personal individual? I I think it depends on who you are. There are some people that don't need it. I mean, I, you know, I, I quickly learned that for me, um, long before I came into this field that therapy was, was peeling an onion. Right. You know, I, um, and I just wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wanted to know more as I learned more and I learned to deal with, you know, what we all, the sort of the, 
toxic shame that all of us carry in some way. As I started to peel that away, there are other things. It's like, oh, well, I took care of this, but that now in taking care of it has changed my perspective on this and this and this. And now I got to look at it. Right. And and I, I, I loved it. I mean, what was amazing to me is like I have good friends to this day that don't get therapy. Like they just don't get it. And and, you know, one who actually interesting, our friendship ended many years ago, but he was going through a really, really hard time. And I was like, you got to go to therapy. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And he came out doing the nope, 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 nope. And not and he went to a great therapist, like one of the, wow. the best in town. But I realized now I look back on it and I go, oh, he just wasn't ready. Sure. You know, he wasn't ready. Sure. Um, I started going to therapy in grad school. Because we have to, right? Uh, what thirty hours we have to do? Yeah, I think it California. California is one of the only places that requires it, which I think oh, okay. is absolutely ridiculous. I think it should always. So, be as part of a your therapist. doctorate, you um, have to do a certain amount of hours in therapy to see what it's like. Um, it actually coincided for me with my second officer-involved shooting that I was involved in. So it was, I I found someone who had done work with trauma. She had actually been married to a police officer as well, had done some work with law enforcement. Um, So it was a really good fit. And after my 30 sessions were over, I continued to see her for a bit um, until a lot of that resolved for me. But that's the only time that I've been. I think it's so interesting because you always hear the mantra, Every good psychologist has their own psychologist. Um, and I like that you said, you know, not everyone has to just because you're a clinician. If and it doesn't necessarily, for some people, it doesn't necessarily make them a better clinician. No. I think, you know. if, if you have those other self-care things in place, it, it can definitely be part of it. But I think just different um, ways of taking care of yourself. I will say this, you know, that this was an interesting phenomenon. I did not see it as a doctoral student, as a master's level student for my MFT, I was blown away in our orientation when there was a wonderful woman at Antioch, Los Angeles, uh, Amy Ezel, and she, I don't know if she's still there, but she was like, every quarter, she was the one ushering the new students in and giving them like about four hours of this intro. And it was always very detailed. And she held people to a high standard, like, look, you're in a master's program. We expect you to be able to work a computer. You know, that kind of thing that like, of course you would, sure. but some people would be, what, I'm going to write my assignments on a old shovel with a piece of charcoal. <laughs> I mean, there are some people that were that much of Luddites, but the thing that blew me away was how many people got completely irked that they had to go to therapy Interesting. in order to graduate. That's so fascinating They were to me. pissed off. Why would I need to go to therapy? And I would think... How the hell did you even consider becoming a therapist if you right. haven't been in therapy? And then later, you know, as I progressed as a professional, I found out exactly what those people were about. Well, and I would, I'll tell you, I would never refer some sure. someone to a clinician like that. I just wouldn't refer. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's episode 34. That's a lot. A lot of good listener questions. Um, If you guys want to send us questions anytime, we will file them away uh, for another episode like this. Um, But this was a lot of fun. Yeah. And we have 
another episode coming out in a couple of weeks, and then the new year will be upon us, and we've got a lot going on in 2020. Like, we're excited and terrified at the same time. We've got so much going on for LA Not So Confidential. And we're... And other, like, just work stuff. We have another another bleed-over work thing that yeah. we're doing, um, possibly with um, retired special agent Fitzgerald. So... You know, we owe him another episode, too, because we, we let that get away. So that as we prepare for it, we got to yeah. follow through with that. Yep. So we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks on what? (laughs) On LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye, guys. Have a great holiday.